Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. Hi, welcome back. Um, So this is part two of the trial episode. Um, And I'm going to pick up right where I left off, which was when I was about to testify against my attacker for the first time. So in the last episode, I left off saying that that was going to happen in January of 2020. But after I released that episode, um, my mom sent me her notes and I was wrong about that date. We did have a a hearing in January of 2020, but the first time um, I testified against Rashad was actually October 31st, 2019. So two months and two and a half months earlier. So in October of 2019, um, my mom, my stepdad, and my little brother all flew out from Wisconsin to LA um, because a date had been set October 31st, 2019 um, for the preliminary hearings to go in front of a judge to see if there was enough evidence and if it was worth going to trial. And like I said in the last episode, I, I was scared to see him. I knew that he couldn't hurt me, um, but I was scared to see him because I was afraid to flesh out an entire person, but, um, I was, I was mostly scared of being cross-examined and I was scared because I'd seen so many, you know, cases, you know, on TV and in the news where the victim, you know, gets like eviscerated and you, you know, you just see, you know, in all of these big high profile cases, the, the lawyers really trying to, um, discredit and take away credibility, uh, from victims by dragging their personal lives through the mud. And like they showed some culpability in what happened to them. So I, I was really scared of, you know, testifying in general and I, I didn't know how personal it would get. Um, so that for me leading up was what I was mostly afraid of. So on that day, October 31st, 2019, I had my family, my mom, my stepdad, and my little brother, and I had a group of friends, including my friend Meg, um, come with me to face him for the first time. 
I remember we were all waiting outside in the hallway in the courthouse and they called us in and said that they were ready for us and it was the courtroom that we were in it was like I don't think any of us were expecting the amount of energy and the 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 number of conversations there were people talking it seemed really um informal i guess there were you know one lawyer had their defendant and were talking to the judge and then someone else would come in and they'd say can i interrupt and i just need da 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 to the judge and it felt chaotic i think in there and and i think we were all kind of thinking it was going to be i guess less of like a feeling like you're in the middle of a hullabaloo of 10,000 things going on. Um, So I think that was the first thing that we were all surprised by. The the first part, the first hearings that we were in, it was like several defendants in there and one judge trying to send them on a path one way or the other. Well, you know, no one prepped you for what it was going to be like, and most people are never in a courtroom. So it was like, we didn't know where to sit. We didn't know what how it would go. We didn't know, like, the format or anything. So it was all kind of jarring. And there were, like, other cases going on right before. And mm-hmm. during, they were interrupting. And I kind of thought that it would be... A quiet room. Yeah, I thought there'd be some reverence for like, for like what it was a had sex happened. crime. Yeah. yeah, and no one it for them it was like someone who worked at Subway. Like, what what do you want on your sandwich? Exactly. And it exactly. felt like it should there should have been like a little more acknowledgement. Like, hang on, this isn't just like a traffic violation. This is like was a life changing thing for almost everyone in here. So I think we were all trying to equalize and just get our bearings once we sat down in the courtroom. Um, And again, there were many, many, many people in there, probably 30 people in there and, you know, split off into 12 different cases. Um, So it was really busy. And, and, And I think, you know, like we know that in retrospect that the courts are overwhelmed and that you know the justice system in in Los Angeles is always 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 on but I I guess we didn't expect to feel so um like it like it was so small I guess what happened and that was the feeling I think we got from the way things were in the room um and then they brought him out. You're five four. And initially when I first saw him, I thought he's huge. I wanted to lunge at him and take revenge in my mind. Obviously you can't do that, but you'll know when you have a child. Like you wanted what to you... hurt him. Yeah. Yeah, like he hurt you. 
but that was just something that I think I want that I that I wanted to do. I knew I couldn't do that, but that's what I was angry. I wasn't afraid of him. I was angry. So my mom was angry, um, but Meg felt a little differently. You know, I had seen like his mugshot before, obviously, and um, so I knew what he looked like. But when they brought him in, I was terrified of him, and I didn't expect to have that reaction. It's like he's been caught, you know, he's behind bars. It, he can't hurt anyone in the courtroom, but my whole body was trembling. It was I was so scared, and I was so surprised by this like very physical reaction. Scared of him? Scared of him. He scared me. Yeah, I was I was so scared. I was like, I don't like my it was my whole body shaking so much that I was thinking, I'm gonna jostle your mom and she's gonna like she doesn't need to be comforting me right now. And then she's gonna look at me like, What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> brought him out I was scared of him he looked so tall he looked so big and he to add to it he was as soon as he entered the courtroom you know he was handcuffed and he was being escorted out to meet his lawyer but he was instantly yelling, talking, talking directly at the judge, um, calling her by her first name, saying the judge's name was Judge Yvette Verastegui. And he was calling her by her first name, yelling to her, saying, Miss Yvette, Miss Yvette, talking about how this wasn't fair. He needed something or something else. And you know, no one was asking him a question and there were already 30 people in there and it was already chaotic. And, you know, the judge was trying to talk to the lawyer, the lawyer was trying to talk to the judge and he was just yelling over all of it. So I think, you know, we all, all it was like a tea kettle. It was like all of us were so kind of blindsided by this room being so chaotic. And then as soon as he came in, um, him adding so much to the chaos. I don't think I knew to expect that he would have that much freedom and and he be was, able to yell out and like be able that. to yell I, out exactly. He knows he's not supposed to do that. And like you said, my experience with him that night was that he was calm even he didn't have any problems you know with carrying out his plan with carrying out his plan so the judge and my attacker had a back and forth for a while um i would say maybe like 10 minutes 10 15 minutes and then uh, the DA and the detective um, came to get me in the back and told me that they were going to bring me up to 
uh, testify, he was seated um, on the front right side of the room, and the witness stand was directly in front of where he was sitting, and the way, the path I had to take to walk there was within two or three feet of him to sit in the witness stand directly across from him. So as I walked um, toward the witness stand, he was still yelling, and he, as he saw me, started yelling things out, um, kind of at me and to the judge and, and just to the courtroom that he was yelling, that's not her, that's not her, that's an actress, um, that's, that's not, and he was saying some other name, um, that's not her, that's not her, uh, and then he was kind of saying some stuff that was just kind of gibberish, like, um, Facebook knows and Motorola knows, and he was clearly agitated, um, but I, I walked up there and, you know, they were, they were kind of telling him to calm down, but it was, no one was really doing anything about it. It just felt like he got to do that. Um, so I stood up there and while he was yelling, uh, they swore me in and they kept kind of just, the judge kept kind of just saying like, sit down, sit down, sit down. And he wouldn't. And I kept thinking like in the movies, there's like bang, 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 the gavel and, you know, like something like that to get order. Um, and that just never happened. He looked very unkempt, you know, uh, very wild and he was screaming stuff and which was different than the way I described him, which was very different than the way you described him. So I was sworn in and I sat down and the assistant DA that was on my case, uh, Morgan Mallory, started to ask me questions about what happened that night. And I think maybe she got one question in um like what is your name and they asked me to spell my name and I said l-e-i-g-h and then last name first letter is c and something about the letter c set him off I said something about I said the letter c and then he started in on like see I told you you know that's not her that's not her like and started I think the woman's name he was saying also started with C and he just was like, as soon as I said my name, he, that was one huge eruption from him. Um, and they asked me to step outside. Um, and to do that, (laughs) I had to again come down off the stand and walk past him within two or three feet of him, you know, this guy who did this thing and was clearly, um, not a peaceful state. So I came down and walked past him and 
uh, walked out into the hallway with my family. And then, you know, I think maybe five to seven minutes went by and they came to get me and they asked me to come back inside. And they, in that time had, you know, told him again to please be quiet. And I walked back past him again and walked up to the stand and the DA asked me a second question, which I, I can't remember what it was, but, you know, the very beginning of the story. And again, he, you know, acted out and yelled out and called out and, you know, this is, this is not what happened. You know, this isn't fair. I need this. I need that. So they asked me to walk out. I walked out, passed him again to the hallway, waited again came back inside, walked back up to the witness stand. We got a few more questions in. And I remember we got to a point where he held a knife to my throat. So still kind of at the beginning of the story. And he, I remember, because this part, I, this part I just don't think I'll ever forget that it happened. And um, you know, he was sitting like five, six feet in front of me, facing me. And I was telling the story and I was just scared of public speaking even, you know, and such high stakes. And what if I mess up? And when they asked me about the knife to my throat, he started yelling and he said, he was yelling at me. She's lying. She's lying. Pull down your shirt. Show us your scars then. Tell her she has to show us. And I remember, like, I don't want to cry. I just, like, I remember looking up at the judge. And she didn't even look at me. She just looked forward. And and I don't, I can't presume to know, you know, if something was happening with her that day or um, what the situation was. But. I just felt out for slaughter. They would bring him in, and then he would yell out and yell out and swear and everything. So then the judge would say, take him out. So then like three bailiffs would take him out. And then... He'd say, okay, I'm going to give him one more chance. Or the defense attorney would ask for one more chance and bring him back in. So, like, that happened, like, three times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he was yelling at the judge, calling her by her first name, and she gave him so many chances that they did call you off, take him away, bring you back, bring him out. You know, it was, like, a lot of making you parade back and forth in front of him, which felt icky and... I hated safe. walking past him. Yeah. Yeah. And then also when you were answering your questions, which you got through like two, that first pretrial, he was right in front of you. He was like five feet from you. It wasn't the DA looking at you and him at the table over, which also felt oh, just like he yeah. was looking out for the victim in this. And I had also gone into that day really scared that he would say something 
to upset my mom, like say something directed at my mom or say something sexual to my mom because that, to me, would have been the one thing that could have pushed me to not be calm a little bit. You know, that would have pissed me off if he had done that. And I was worried that he would. Um, Also, I didn't want, you know, my mom with everything she had gone through with this, I I, I didn't want him to look at her. I didn't want him to talk to her. I didn't want him to upset her. So while I was sitting there and, you know, didn't, I, I, I kind of let go of the idea of that I was going to be protected, um, in that situation. So I, I started thinking, you know, like you have to be really strong right now and, and resolute and find your strength and not be scared right now. Like I I felt that I needed to let go of my fear and and I needed to find something else. And I looked over at him because I I thought I'm just going to face what I'm most afraid of and I'm going to look him in the eye Um, because I... You know, we really hadn't done that. And I looked at him, and he was yelling at me. But I realized he wasn't looking at me. He was looking at, like, the base of the witness box. Like, down close. He was looking, like, down at the floor in front of me. And I felt for a second like a swell of like, oh, like he's not doing this from a place of power, if that makes sense. He's doing this because he's scared and rightfully so, you know, like his life is on the line. Um... So that, seeing that he was too afraid, and then I kept trying to catch his eye while I was sitting there. Um, And he wouldn't look at me. And it, you know, my fear of him then, it didn't completely go away. I wouldn't say that. But um, I started to realize you know, I'm, I'm pretty formidable as well. They at one point took him into a room where he couldn't see, but he could listen. Yeah. And you could steer, still hear him kicking the walls, screaming, mm-hmm. screaming things. So it just like, they must have prisoners that do this or defendants that do this, but the protocol for it seemed very 
Well, remember strange. when they finally removed him? The judge, his lawyer, and even the DA were, they seemed flabbergasted. Like, they were like, he he's never been like this. He's always so polite yeah. and quiet. So with all of the delays and, and every time I had to be taken out or him taken out, um, we got to the end of the day and not much had been done. I think we all left that day a little shocked, a little confused, um, a little worn. I think I, I remember feeling just really drained and, and overwhelmed. And we got in the car and we were driving back to my uh, apartment. And I think as we were all driving away, we were all, or most of us, were kind of wondering if Rashad was really insane. I mean, I was. And I got a call from the detective. When he called, it was about 15 minutes after we'd left the courthouse. And... He said that when Rashad was being escorted out, um, that he had said to the bailiff on his way out, um, so how do you think I did? Do you think that was an Oscar-worthy performance? Right, and this was all, okay, so after the very first one where he had his first like outburst, and then he said to the bailiff, how was my performance? Was it Oscar worthy? Mm -hmm. And then we knew, okay, this is all acting. Like you had suspected from the get go, your mm -hmm. mom knew. I was just so freaked out. I didn't know. Head from tails. <laughs> I, went home and took a nap, remember? Yeah. Um, but after that, it delayed it so much because they had to have him evaluated. And we even, I think at points were wondering like, has this guy been crazy the whole time? I, I wasn't. You were? I wasn't wondering that. No, no. It seemed to be a big put on. It was like something you see on TV, the kind of acting that was turned on and off. His behavior in court that day, though, did convince the judge that he should be seen for another psych evaluation. And what we were told is that that's actually really good for us um, because, you know, if he gets seen multiple times um, for a psych evaluation, it just helps cement that he is, in fact, competent. So after that October 31st hearing, um, he went to another psychiatric evaluation for 60 days. And also those evaluations, those were 60 days maybe each time that he had those mental health evaluations. And how many do you think he had throughout that process? I think two or three. He tried to, they tried to get more. And what they do in those is they, they watch him around the clock. And, they, and there's nobody that can keep that act up unless they really do have mental health problems. Um around the clock for that many days. 
So 60 days after that first preliminary hearing, we got word that he had um, been found competent. I think that was the second um, evaluation that he had, second or third. Um, and every time was found competent. So they set a date um, for the first week of January uh, to resume the preliminary hearing where we had left off. So I think for that hearing in January, just my mom flew out and it was just me, my mom and Meg um, that went that first day. And I think that first day Rashad refused to come out of his cell and they tried to get an extraction order, which means that they just take him out of his cell and put him on a separate transport. But I think we were there until about 4 or 4.30 and that didn't work. So then the next day um, we were waiting in the hallway and I think something happened with some scheduling conflict with the judge we had had before and we got moved to another judge's courtroom, um, Judge William Sadler. And I think after the last time we were ready for anything and, and we knew that Rashad wasn't going to make it easy to get through. You know, I was prepared to walk up and down and up and down and do what I needed to do. I think, you know, we all felt a little bit more um, prepared for what could happen uh, this time around. And we did go into that courtroom and Rashad was there and he was acting the same way. He was you know, yelling out to the judge, but this judge had not um, been in these prior prelim setting meetings um, with Rashad and didn't have the same relationship with him. So Rashad was definitely doing the same things that he had been doing in the last courtroom and, and the process at the beginning was very similar. I would go up and take the stand. Rashad would yell things at me and in the courtroom. But this time the judge would look over at me and talk to me and say, I remember him saying, I'm so sorry, Miss C. Do you remind, or do you mind uh, stepping out into the hallway for a minute? And I, you know, did what I needed to do and walked out and came back in and then, you know, it was happening again, and the judge looked over at me and said, I'm so sorry, Miss C. Um, I'm going to ask you to step outside again. And I actually have uh, the court transcripts of what uh, the judge, the defense attorney, and Rashad were saying in that open courtroom um, while I stepped out. It starts with the court. If you don't let me finish right now, the defendant, you don't know what's going on. The court, I'm trying to tell you what is going on, but you're not going to be able to learn what's going on unless you let me speak. The defendant, you're right, all right. There's your preliminary hearing going on. There's witnesses who are going to testify. If you start speaking during their testimony, I'm going to take you outside into the lockup because I'm going to find that you're voluntarily absenting yourself from the proceedings. The defendant, give me another wave another court date right now so I can have a great understanding. The court, I'm not going to do that. 
We're doing the preliminary hearing right now. People call your first witness, Ms. Mallory. People ask to call Ms. Lisi, the court. What's the name of the witness? Ms. Mallory, name of Lee, L-E-I-G-H-C. I get sworn in. Um, they ask me to state my name and last initial. I say, okay, first name is Lee, L-E-I-G-H, last name, last initial is C. The clerk, thank you. The defendant, tell them your first name. The court, okay, all right, sir, I've given you in the defendant. She said, the court, please step out into the hallway. We'll bring you right back, okay? Thank you. To me. Um, I leave the courtroom. The defendant. She said her name was C. She didn't say her name was Carol. That's not my accuser. That's not her. The court. The court is going to find that despite being warned repeatedly, Mr. Harris has voluntarily absented himself from the proceedings by disrupting the orderly taking of testimony. Mr. Harris has been restored to competency according to the reports from physicians. He's currently competent. I believe he understands what's going on. I think he's doing this to basically try to subvert the process of the preliminary hearing. His attorney, Your Honor, I would object. Mr. Harris deserves to be present at his prelim. He has the right to be present at his preliminary hearing. And if he has been restored to comp comp competency, then you know... Department 95 regarded him as competent to proceed, and therefore he should be present in court. The court. Right, except he's not. He's interfering with the process by talking out loud and speaking and interjecting in spite of being warned. So give me an alternative. The court takes a short recess. The court. I explained to him in detail, in detail before we started that, if he interfered with the taking of testimony that I wouldn't allow that, and that he would be voluntarily absenting himself, and he, Ms. Shokrian, any chance that we could do the preliminary hearing in 31, another room in the courthouse, where there is that glass box that has a microphone in it? I know then he can be in there. Ms. Mallory, that's the assistant DA. May I be heard? The court? Yes. Ms. Mallory, couple of things. Defendant had to be extracted yesterday. He voluntarily absented himself from court yesterday, just so the court is clear. Not this court, so the record is clear. I apologize. He was extracted. He wasn't able to be brought to court before 4.30. That's the only reason we find ourselves here today. Not only has this court explained to him how to behave and what to go on, Judge Berastegui has had probably 30 total minutes over different court dates explaining to him how to act and what's going on. The defendant did the exact same thing he began to do today last time we began the preliminary hearing. He also exhibited some other interesting behavior. In an abundance of caution, a doubt was declared. He told the bailiffs, how was my performance? After all of this has been put on the record, the people's position is the defendant knows exactly what he's doing. And once again, he's delaying the proceedings. The victim has been, not this court's fault, but waiting on the defendant to get to court. The victim was here eight hours yesterday. It's been a busy morning today, partly my fault with another case, and this court has a big calendar. So once again, it's 11.18, and the victim is waiting to testify. The people would ask that the court find the defendant has knowingly, intelligently, voluntarily waived his presence at the preliminary hearing, and we would ask to proceed. 
Going to another courtroom is going to take time. Based on the people's, I've been present for almost every court appearance with this defendant since March of 2018. Based on his behavior in most court appearances, the people believe that should the defendant be put behind the glass, if we're allowed to hear him, there will be outbursts. Otherwise, last time that happened, he was kicking the door. It's just going to delay, and the people have no information to believe he'll sit there quietly and listen. So we're asking the court to make the finding to be able to recall our witness and just move forward with this prelim. She's already had to get off the stand once today, and we had to stop in the middle of the prelim once, and before she was here all day yesterday, and for all those reasons, we're just asking to go forward right now in this courtroom. The court. In Department 31, they have a calendar. They have matters they have to hear. So if I was to start there, even if I was able to use it, it would be for a very limited time because they're a fully functioning court. They're in session. So I can't just take over a courtroom. And even then it presents obstacles because it's not like you can't hear outbursts in there. It's just that you can turn off the microphone and they're not as loud. It's still the same issue. I'll stop the proceedings in 15 minutes and I'll ask him if he's willing to abide by the rules. Why doesn't the court ask him now, Ms. Shakrian? The court, because he has had an outburst after an extended discussion with him, telling him that, if he had an outburst, I'm going to find that he voluntarily absented himself, and bringing him out, this is a method of delay. He's using a method of delay to intentionally delay the proceedings, and bringing him out again is more delay in this case, and I think he's doing this intentionally, so no, I'm not going to do that. All right, please bring the witness back. They bring me back, and they ask me maybe a, a fair amount of questions. They ask me maybe 10 to, 10 to 12 questions. And then Miss Shakrian. Your Honor, can I interrupt? I apologize. It appears that Mr. Harris has understood the court's admonition and is going to comply with the court's warnings and does want to come out. So can we try it again and bring him right out right now? The court, how do you know that? Ms. Shakrian, I know that one of my college, colleagues just spoke to him and told me that. The court, all right, let's see if he can, and then looks to me, just briefly walk out into the hallway. We're going to bring you back very, very soon. The witness, me. Okay. Um, they bring him in. They explain to him that if the court says... The first outburst, you'll have to go back. The defendant says, I'll have to go. The court, yes. The defendant, I had to go scream inside the cell. I had to talk to myself. The court, I'm going to allow you a second chance. If you have another outburst, you'll go immediately back. The defendant, yes, sir. The court, you understand? The defendant, yes, sir. The court, are you going to have another outburst? The defendant, besides I'm talking to you now... The court, I'm asking if you're going to have another outburst when the witness takes the stand. The defendant, no. Court, okay, please bring in the witness. Defendant speaks to his counsel. The court, sir, I need you to be quiet. The defendant, I am quiet. I'm talking about my case. They go back and forth about his volume. The court says, I'll allow you to have a small pencil and you can write any notes. The defendant, no, no, no. I don't want, I want people to feel safe around me. I'm good. The witness is brought back into the courtroom. The court, 
All right, you can have a seat, ma'am. Just as a reminder, you're still under oath and people you may proceed. Um, the, the assistant DA keeps asking me questions. She gets one, two, three. And I'm answering and it says, defendant speaking at the same time as the witness. The defendant, Mr. Williams, the court. Okay, sir. The defendant, she didn't say her name. The court, okay, Miss C, I'm sorry. This will be the last time. If you can just walk out on t- walk out into the hallway again, this will take a second. The defendant, her name is supposed to be Caroline. I'm sorry, sir. Okay, whatever. I've seen the discovery. The court, within one question of you returning, you had another outburst. I'm finding that he's voluntarily absented himself from these proceedings. He will not comply with any order I make. He's doing this to disrupt the process. I also think he's doing it to intimidate the witness. I'm not going to countenance that now, nor in the tank. The defendant, Mr. Williams, hold on. The court, we're done. Ms. Shokrian, could the court just wait and let me see the court? No. The defendant, why not? Oh my God, for real? That's some straight bullshit. Mr. Williams, for real? Oh my God, this is crazy. The defendant leaves the courtroom. And then after that, we proceed with my testimony. And you guys were still sitting in there at that Mm -hmm. point. He said, I think that the defendant is trying to delay proceedings. And I think the defendant is trying to intimidate the witness. Mm -hmm. And he was like, and I will absolutely not allow that. Which we were like, thank I I think we like had to stop ourselves from breaking out into applause. Right. Because it was so different than the previous one. But then I guess I came up against another obstacle. I had told that story of what happened that night over and over and over again for years. And I knew it back and forth. I, you know, I knew that story so well and could tell it to anyone at any time. But at that hearing in January, once we got to a point where we could ask and answer questions um I kept forgetting Mm -hmm. from the moment there were ears to listen I had told that story over and over and over and over again so that I never lost any level of detail Mm -hmm. and that so that I couldn't ever cauterize that wound so that it was always accessible for that moment but I remember going to lunch with you and your, you and your mom, your, you and my mom. And I was having so much trouble accessing the memory because yes. I hadn't practiced. I hadn't thought that I would have any trouble getting to that memory because I'd said it so many times, but I kept describing it as when I was put on the stand in a situation that felt scary like that and high stakes like that. It was like a door that was covered in butter. And I remember you saying that's such a Midwestern. (laughs) (laughs) Like a doorknob that I'm trying to grab that's covered in butter because I just kept trying to turn this doorknob and open this door to this memory I know is there. And I couldn't get to it. And they were asking me questions and I was getting so frustrated because I was forgetting it. Well, it was also like, okay, so he had, wait, that wasn't when he was yelling. 
It was, when When was that when we went out to lunch? I think that was after he had gotten kicked out by the second judge. By the second judge. You're yeah. right. You were definitely in a weird place. And you said, I don't think I can, like, access these memories. And so we sat kind of in silence eating lunch while well, you repeated it. tried to repeat it. And then you kept getting stuck. And your mom and I were looking at you. And then I think one of us said, isn't that when? And you were like, that's when that happened. Yes. And it was like, you you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't unlock these. And you were getting really frustrated with yourself. I maybe have never been more frustrated mm-hmm. than at that moment. when And I, I subjected you guys to an hour of sitting in silence <laughs> and listening to me struggle to repeat through this story over this Six-minute story over and over and over and over and over and over well, again. Well, it's much longer than six minutes, but... The story? Well, but the one thing that you did have down pat, except for this one day, was the story. Well, like, that's why it was so frustrating. Yeah. Because I, I knew that I had spent so many hours preparing for this. Telling the story over and over to anyone with ears. Mm-hmm. Truly, everyone heard that story. The very first time I saw you in the hospital, I think I had seen you for about three minutes and you said, do you want to know what happened? And then went through the entire story with your monitors going off the charts. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, of course, that's incredibly frustrating that then at that point it was like two years later, you finally get your day in court and you're drawing a blank on it. But that's like, that's trauma. That's what trauma does to your brain. That's what I was going to say. Like that... That, I think, is part of the surprises of the mind to me. That, like, my mind compulsively told me to tell the story. That wasn't a conscious decision. I wasn't saying to myself, you need to practice this because Mm -hmm. you're going to have to do it on the stand. I was compulsively doing it over and over. Mm -hmm. So my mind subconsciously told me, keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it. I'm sure it was also to discharge energy to make it feel a little bit less lonely and scary. Mm -hmm. The more people I shared it with, the more people understood and the more people kind of held that space with me that at that time felt lonely and scary. So after going out to lunch with my mom and Meg and repeating the story over and over and over again, um, I definitely wasn't able to do it without um, struggling, but I was able to to put the story in order together um, and completed my testimony that day. So after he was removed and we were able to get through the testimony, um, we all were able to leave the courtroom and the preliminary hearing was over. Um, And I think we were all so thankful and relieved um, that it wasn't... I think it was my first time, obviously, realizing that I think your experience in court is highly dependent on the judge presiding 
Um, the dynamic in the first courtroom was so different from the dynamic in the second courtroom. Um, I felt like a human. I felt like someone who mattered in the second courtroom. I felt like that judge cared that he was trying to scare me and cared that me and my mom were sitting out in the hallway all day the day before because he didn't want to come. And I I just, I didn't realize how different it can be um, from one courtroom to the other. The other thing I'll say about that court process is that um, I had to take off of work to be there and, you know, take a couple days or a day to prepare. Um, my family had to fly out and buy plane tickets to come from Wisconsin to Los Angeles to come be with me, um, which they didn't, of course, need to be there with me, but they wanted to be. Uh, to get down to the courthouse, you, you know, you can drive or you could take the bus. Um, to drive, parking, I think, costs $27 a day. Um, so I say all that to say that, like, if you were working, I was working a salaried job where I was able to take leave and take time off. If you were working an hourly job and you had to take a day off of work and, you know, the man who, or the person who did this to you refused to come out of their cell and you had had to take the bus from wherever you live and get to the courthouse or pay $27 and that is, that's a huge amount of money to pay for parking for the day. Um, if I don't have any kids, but if you had kids and you had to arrange for childcare and then you, and you have to pay for childcare and then you get there and you wait all day and he won't come out because he doesn't want to, you know, there's an actual, I can see why some women or survivors can get to, to a point where they say, I can't do this. I can't make this happen. I can see that that tactic could work. Um, I felt very lucky to be able to accommodate those delays and that my family was able to come to fly back out after the first delay. You know, but it 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 all costs money. And it all takes time. And imagining if he had raped me that night. You know, if, if I had memories of him being... Memories like that of him. And he were five feet away and yelling at me to pull down my shirt and show him the scars that he inflicted on my body... I can see easily how someone would say, 
I don't want to do this. And especially if nobody is protecting you. So after that second preliminary hearing um, with the other judge, uh, we did get approval for a trial. And a date was set for jury selection in March of 2020. I think jury selection began on March 11th of 2020. And I think everybody knows what's going to happen. So then in March of 2020, we had booked our flights. Um, We were going to come. It was like Friday the 13th, and I think we were going to leave the next day. We had an Airbnb booked. We had our flights booked. We were going to come out for finally the trial. And I think they had already started jury selection, or were about to. Um, And then the pandemic hit, and everything was shut down. And so everything was canceled. Court was canceled. Then the trial was supposed to happen mid-March of 2020, and lockdown was announced. It was like two days before they were in jury I selection. Think it, I think it was the day before, wasn't the day it? Before. The day before your trial was to start, everything was on the news. Like, is the city going to shut down? And then I think, yeah, it was the day before we got work because everyone had taken off. I think. Mm-hmm. Was your mom already out here? They they had tickets to fly out. And they were waiting to see. They were waiting to see. I remember I was really mad at my older brother because he said he didn't feel comfortable traveling. And I told my mom to tell him he better fucking be here. And lo and behold, everything got shut down. So he was correct. But <laughs> I they had an Airbnb booked. I remember That's being right. at the grocery store and got the text from the detective saying, you know, we need to talk. And I think we talked on the phone and he said, it's all going to be postponed. So then that was, I had been waiting for so long for that to happen. And then all of the fear in the air with quarantine happening and COVID. And at that time, I mean, we all remember what it was like at that time. Like we had no answers. Mm -hmm. I watched contagion like three times an outbreak thinking like i bought beans at every gas station i could find because i thought we were gonna go to war okay i still have i still have tupperware on the top shelf of dry beans that i bought from the gas station in wet rice boxes Mm -hmm. i poured the rice out into these containers bought it anyway because it was the only stuff left because it was just crazy at that time yeah like, that was when people were fighting over toilet paper. Yeah, the shelves are empty. Shelves are empty. There is no pasta and rice to be found in stores. No. Remember okay. that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So we went from one crazy life thing to another crazy life thing. And my mom and my family and... um my friends who were going to come be there from out of town um, all canceled their flights and their plans and everybody went into lockdown. And the DA, the detective, you know, all, all of us were unsure when the courts would resume. 
thank you guys so much for listening as always um in the next episode i'll we will resume the trial um so i'll take you through that timeline how we were able to get there and in the next episode you'll learn some new information that i learned around this time um and i'll also finally get to know what was in the letter so thank you guys again and I appreciate it, and if you feel inclined to share um, with anyone, I, I of course, always appreciate that, Um, and I'll see you next week.